0: America first was coined by Trump, but it wasn't really a Trumpian invention. It's likely to continue in some form.
1: Welcome to The Great Reset, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at how we can build a cleaner, fairer, smarter world after COVID-19. This week, the forum assembled leading voices from around the globe to discuss how the pandemic has changed the way countries deal with each other and what will be the future of international relations.
2: The one thing that COVID underscores is very much how our individual well-being is very much tied to the well-being of people halfway around the world.
1: Will the pandemic force a reset of global cooperation? And what can we expect from the economic superpowers as the United States picks its leader for the next four years?
0: If Trump is re-elected, we can expect more continuity, perhaps with even more gusto. With a Biden administration, I think you have broadly more an inward-looking America than your.
1: Will China cement its position as a diplomatic as well as economic superpower?
0: The Chinese leadership
3: will continue to ramp up efforts to ensure globalization and global collaboration.
1: And will the rise of China push fewer or more countries into the arms of America.
4: I sense you will see the relative decline of the US as an attractive moment for many to align far more closely with the US than they were earlier willing to.
1: Subscribe to The Great Reset on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to like, rate, and review us. I'm Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum. And with highlights from the latest Great Reset dialogue, this is The Great Reset. January 2020, yes I know it seems like years ago instead of just 10 months. In that month at Davos in Switzerland the World Economic Forum issued its Global Risks Report which looks at what experts consider to be the biggest threats to world peace and prosperity. One of the things it highlighted was a retreat from multilateralism, that's countries working together towards common goals. That retreat from multilateralism threatened our ability to take action on the world's most pressing problems. Now, the emergence of COVID-19 in the weeks after that, and the need to take coordinated policies on stopping its spread and researching cures and vaccines, has put that thing to the test. Maybe it's too early to say whether the world has risen to the challenge and joined together to beat this virus, or failed miserably. But as well as showing the state of global collaboration, the pandemic is also likely to change the way countries work together and compete. In the latest of its fortnightly Great Reset Dialogues, the forum brought together voices from around the World to discuss revitalizing global partnerships. You can see the whole discussion on our website at weform.org. But in this podcast, we'll bring you some potted highlights. One thing that
2: COVID underscores is very much how our individual well being is very much tied to the well being of of people halfway around the world.
1: Michael Froman is vice chairman and president of strategic growth at MasterCard, and he knows a thing or two about international relations. He was U.S. trade representative under President Barack Obama. He was asked if he was worried that nationalism was beating the idea of global cooperation.
2: You know, I think in terms of nationalism, we are seeing it pop up all over the place. And um, there are legitimate concerns that countries have around wanting to make sure, for example, uh, Uh, privacy of individuals are protected, but sometimes those spill over or are conflated with nationalist um, solutions. And there are ways certainly of addressing legitimate concerns while still maintaining the connectivity to the rest of the world that is so important. We therefore need to make sure that we've got uh, processes in place for sharing data, sharing information while protecting privacy is just one example. Countries going to have national clouds, national internets, balkanization of technology, decoupling, that's only going to damage our efforts to address the, the collective challenges uh, that we face. And I think that spills over into trade as well, Berger. I think uh, uh, while we focus a lot on the trading goods, what we're seeing, particularly in the services area, which is in many countries, the, the majority of the economy, is a, a tendency to impose nationalist solutions. We have to make sure that even as we may be pulling apart or reordering our supply chains, making them more regional in nature, that we're not losing some of the benefit of interoperability, global standards, connectivity that has been so positive for the global economy over the last several decades. And one thing this crisis has has highlighted is just how important it is for people and businesses to be included in the digital economy, whether it's as a mechanism for governments to provide support or in the case of small businesses to stay alive from moving from a brick and mortar existence to an online existence and staying in touch with customers and suppliers uh, and the like, and, and being able to maintain their business. We cannot have the internet of everything without having the internet of everyone. And I think making sure that we don't allow a new digital divide to emerge that further Uh, creates inequality or widens the inequality is going to be absolutely critical.
1: MasterCard Vice Chairman Michael Froman on the need for international cooperation to ensure everyone around the world has access to safe, secure digital technology. It's almost four years since Donald Trump was elected President of the USA. In that time, he's withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement, the Iran Nuclear Deal, and in principle, the World Health Organization, to name just three of many international agreements. What difference will the election there in a few weeks make? Alessandra Galoni, global managing editor of the world's biggest news organization, Reuters, said maybe we shouldn't expect too much change either way.
0: policy of America first, it was coined this way by Trump, but it wasn't really a Trumpian invention. And it's likely to continue, I think, in some form. The US has made clear that it doesn't want to be the policeman of the world anymore. Uh, And I think the financial crisis of 2008 cemented this for many, many Americans. And led the way potentially for for Trump. The biggest area of broad continuity would be the tough stance against China, which has defined the Trump administration's foreign policy and on the other side has been met by an aggressive acceleration of China's own geopolitical ambitions. South China Sea, India, Australia, Taiwan, Hong Kong. And whether you're going to have Biden or Trump in the White House come January, the U.S. is not going to relent on China, and China knows that. And, you know, Biden's advisors have all produced very tough analyses on China, on military buildup, human rights, espionage, trade. Now, there will be a difference, and the discontinuity, if you will, will be more an approach so that under Biden, you could have, you know, things that are more predictable, more orderly, maybe more traditionally diplomatic. Um, you know, maybe Washington trying to engage Beijing with carrots and sticks, not with just sticks, all sticks, which is Trump and especially Pompeo. I would say in terms of discontinuity would be Middle East and climate change with a focus on a more multilateral approach. Biden has indicated that he, he would revisit the 2015 nuclear deal that the Obama administration reached with Iran and with five other world powers. He would probably turn off that flickering green light to West Bank annexation that Trump gave Netanyahu in 2020. And he probably would be more careful to not leave the field clear to Iran in Iraq, in Syria, and in, and in Lebanon, which Trump's... I would say erratic behavior has tended, had tended to do. And then in general, as in China, he would give less of a free pass on human right violations and crackdown. And then on climate, Biden has pledged, um, you know, to reinvigorate the leadership of the U.S. on on climate, obviously including reentering the Paris Accord, putting pressure on China, particularly on exports of coal technology, uh, the imprint of Belt and Road, uh, but also putting pressure on U.S. oil majors uh, to come up with transition plans because European oil majors have, but U.S. ones have not. And of course, he's pledged net zero emissions by 2050. You know, Biden believes in multilateralism, Um, And, you know, this is true in the topics that I've mentioned, but um, also in topics like North Korea and other international issues. I guess if Trump is reelected, we can expect more continuity, perhaps with even more gusto. If with a Biden administration, I think you have broadly more an inward looking America than your, but a change in administration would herald sort of a, a discontinuity and sort of a change and a renewal of international uh, negotiations and and relationships.
1: Reuters global managing editor Alessandra Galoni. That's a view on the U.S. So what about China? Jin Ke professor of economics at the London School of Economics, said China had used what might be termed the withdrawal of the U.S. from the world stage to enhance its own position as a global leader.
3: China wanted uh, to uh, use uh, this opportunity where uh, the U.S. has wanted to kind of um, you know reduce its global responsibilities to take up a greater role. And we've seen some of its global projects, including the Belt Road and also more active uh, more active participation in global climate collaboration as evidence of the fact that China does want to play a more active and proactive role, also recognizing the fact that China needs to give back to globalization, uh, having benefited so much from it. Um, so that was indeed the plan. I think there was a great opportunity for China to potentially um, build greater international trust uh, during the pandemic during this past year. Um, but, you know, lots of things have changed, including the perception of China from all around the world. So that has made uh, this, um, this goal a little bit more difficult and has also led the Chinese government to also rethink about what exactly is the image that China wants to Uh, give uh, to the rest of the world. During the pandemic and the global fight to to overcome this great challenge, I think China has intended to play a greater role. Uh, There are uh, lots of collaborations between the Chinese government and a host of countries, uh, whether it is about critical equipment, but also medical collaboration and clinical experience sharing um, uh, from state to state, but also at the more private level uh, from within the private sector and also public, public-private public uh, partnerships. If we're talking about a potential coming of a different, uh, another financial crisis caused by the pandemic, uh, China will have to play a very big role in terms of not only as an anchor of demand, but also potentially an anchor of liquidity, especially for emerging markets and developing countries. Um, and uh, as China, uh, China's economy uh, rebounces and recovers ahead of everybody else, uh, we'll have to play a much more positive role in the financial sector as well. The Chinese leadership cares, number one, deeply about globalization and global collaboration, and will continue to ramp up efforts to make to ensure that. Uh, and second, that it still puts as a priority, just echoing the, the geopolitical questions we spoke about, about U.S.-China relations, despite what we're hearing from the news and the mainstream media it is the top uh, priority still for the Chinese government. And they do want to find uh, rooms for, you know, scope for collaboration and to preserve a relatively harmonious um, relationship, even if they are uh, competitors, uh, hoping that it will be more of a healthy competition than Uh, a more of a hostile uh, relationship.
1: Economics professor Jin Kei Yu, and the Belt and Road Initiative that she referred to there is the cornerstone foreign policy of China in recent years, with which it's invested huge amounts of money in infrastructure projects around the world. You're listening to The Great Reset from the World Economic Forum. We'll have more highlights from the Reset dialogue on international relations in a post-COVID world after this news of a brand new podcast title.
5: The World Economic Forum has a brand new podcast, Meet the Leader, where the world's top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. On this week's Meet the Leader, we talk to IBM's Dario Gill about his idea for a global super squad of scientists who could prevent future calamities with the best technology at their fingertips.
1: Could we mobilize a group of volunteer scientists that would engage ahead of the pandemic or even a meteorite? He'll talk
5: about why we need this super squad known as the Science Readiness Reserves and the supercomputer project that inspired it. He'll also explain what makes great collaborations tick, and a book he thinks everyone should read. It's
1: not about one single institution that is going to solve
2: our problems,
1: but a different way to collaborate with one another.
5: All this and more on this week's Meet the Leader.
1: Welcome back to The Great Reset, to where we're listening to highlights from the World Economic Forum's reset dialogue on international relations in a post-COVID world. We've heard about the US, we've heard about China, now India. This is Samir Saran, president of India's Observer Research Foundation.
4: There are three very interesting fault lines that uh, are visible. The first, of course, is uh, uh, the old 20th century fault line around the fascination around geography. And we are seeing uh, this moment the last few years um, Uh, uh, we are seeing in this period uh, certain actors seeking to uh, change the territorial maps and and acquire control over uh, the jurisdictions. And I think uh, in this coming decade, we will therefore see coalitions emerge to respond to this contest over geography that is playing out uh, across Asia, by the way. We see it right from the uh, western uh, uh, periphery of Asia to uh, the East Asian uh, uh, islands, and we are seeing uh, this uh, geographical tensions create new coalitions that are beginning to respond to um, a more assertive uh, Asian actor, uh, namely China. I sense you will see the relative decline on the U of the U.S. as a uh, attractive uh, moment for many to align far more closely than the U.S. with the U.S. than they were earlier willing to. So a U.S. in relative decline is a far more attractive proposition for India uh, to uh, get into partnerships with, to manage uh, assertive, expansive and growing China. Technology is now deeply political. It shapes elections, it shapes societies, it creates uh, uh, violence, it can uh, uh, destabilize regimes, it can delegitimize uh, elected governments, it can influence elections. Um, And therefore, uh, I think trust is going to become a buzzword uh, to Um, manage relationships uh, which will implicate technology partnerships. Uh, And therefore, we are going to certainly see a form of gated globalization emerge where countries who trust each other will engage far more intimately in the technology spheres, namely platforms, content, uh, and codes, uh, uh, whereas Uh, the hardware associated with technology might be uh, far more dispersed and global in nature. Uh, And, you know, the global partnership on AI, the D10 proposition from UK, uh, the, the clean tech network proposition from the US, India, Japan and Australia teaming up to create these new safe supply chains are all indications that technology is going to be a highly geopolitical domain. And again, new partnerships and coalitions based on trust are going
1: to emerge there. Samir Saran on his idea of limited purpose partnerships or gated globalization, replacing truly global collaboration. Let's look at some of the things he mentioned there, the D10, is a proposal that the G7, the group of seven countries, could invite South Korea, India, and Australia together to address 5G, mobile communications, and vulnerable supply chains. That's what the UK government's been thinking about. The Global Partnership on AI, or Artificial Intelligence, is an initiative based in France that brings together countries to pursue responsible development and use of AI, and I quote, in a spirit of respect for human rights, inclusion, diversity, innovation and economic growth. And the US initiative, he mentioned, is something that's called the Clean Network, which is the Trump administration's invitation to freedom-loving countries to come together to achieve technology safe from, and I quote, authoritarian malign actors. I'll add links to all those on the article that accompanies this podcast episode on our website, wef.ch slash podcasts. Now, the idea of limited purpose partnerships or gated globalization struck a chord with MasterCard's Michael Froman.
2: I like the comment about uh, gated globalization. I think that's a, a terrific phrase because a lot of these issues will go around to, well, what, what, rules around information, uses of data, protection of data, protection of individual privacy um, are countries comfortable with, and who are they willing to trust. Trust is absolutely going to be critical, and creating those networks of trust around strong principles protecting privacy are going to be absolutely critical, while at the same time allowing countries to come together and share information and be able to do the analytics that allow us to address a number of the outstanding uh Uh, outstanding common issues.
1: So in a world in which countries come together in various coalitions of the willing to tackle different problems, what's the future for old-style global organisations, such as the World Trade Organization, the body that regulates global trade and operates on the principle of often hard-to-attain consensus between all its members? This is Lubna Olayan, Chair of the Executive Committee of the Olayan Financing Group, who also served as Chair of the B20 Saudi Arabia Trade and Investment Task Force, which looked at how to reform the global trading system. I'll add a link to her on our website too. Here's what she had to say.
5: How can we make sure that trade increases? And there was a study by BCT and HSBC, uh, and HSBC is one of the co-chairs With us in the trade and investment, and and it showed that the world could gain between five to six trillion dollars in trade volume from April of this year, and uh, uh, and with that is an associated actually eight to ten trillion GDP growth, if and only if we embrace an open and fair trading system we cut the red tape and refrain from restrictive measures. So this shows how important it is for us collectively to focus on uh, uh, improving trade and increasing uh, 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 supply chains between countries. I guess one of the main things is to make sure that the multilateral system of trade exists. And one of our key recommendations which i have to say was adopted and glad the Riyadh initiative is wto reform and uh, so there is consensus that uh, the, uh, there should be a wto reform and uh, that that will improve by doing that which is what has taken us back now is because of this covered environment as we will we've seen we have decreased uh, 20, 13% in terms of trade in this year so this is more of our focus that we should really move to improving trade and supply chains between countries
1: saudi arabia's lubna olayan with an eye to november's u.s election let's give the last word to former u.s trade secretary michael froman of mastercard
2: regardless of the election outcome i wouldn't expect the pendulum to shift completely Uh, To the other to the other extreme I think the issues that have been put on the table including about the need to reform and update the WTO um, Are real and longstanding. I completely agree with Lubna that that's got to be a priority is uh, Fixing what can be fixed. I I think the appellate body the dispute settlement procedures um, should be capable of being fixed as countries come to the table with goodwill to do so I think it is difficult, though, to imagine 164 countries engaging in the sort of big trade liberalizing rounds that we've saw over the last four or five decades. And my guess is when it comes to setting new rules um, and opening up trade, we're likely to see more progress as coalitions of the ambitious get together and take on new issues, set new standards, and hopefully do so in a way that is what I call open plurilateralism, to where other countries can join and it can become closer and closer to multilateral over time. But if we wait for the lowest common denominator of the 164 member, um, where each one has a veto over anything in a trade agreement, my, my worry is we won't see very much progress.
1: You can see all of that Great Reset dialogue, just follow the link on the article accompanying this episode on our website wef.ch slash podcasts where you'll also find information about our new podcast Meet the Leader you can get all our coverage of COVID-19 and the other big issues facing the world at weforum.org and follow us on Facebook Instagram LinkedIn TikTok YouTube and on Twitter using the handle at WEF thanks to Gareth Nolan for help producing this week's podcast thanks to you for listening but for now from me Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum goodbye